All right. If you got your Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open with me uh, to 1 Samuel 24, where we're going to keep going through the life of David that we've been looking at. 1 Samuel 24, let me set up this morning uh, the context of what's going on like this. One of the most important aspects of living life as a Christian is the reality that you're not in charge. God is king, and you live under His rule and follow His ways. Now, this is something that is lost in a big sense in modern Christianity, but one of the main elements of being a Christian is that God's in charge of life, and you are not. Right. I, I think for those of you who've been coming to Harrison Bridge for a, a, a long time, this won't be anything that, that's new. We talk about this all the time, right? When we talk about what it means to follow Jesus, we use Luke nine twenty three, where Jesus says, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me." What is what is that about? What's that say? What's that entail? It means that Jesus is saying that if you want to be a Christian. I am in charge, and you are not. This is just basic Christianity stuff. It means we live under another king. We're not our own king. We're not our own God. And one of the problems with that, though, is that it's really easy then, if we're, if we're trying to live with, king, with Jesus as king, with God as king, it's really easy to follow the Lord when life goes the way that you think it should. Everybody tracking with me there? Like, of course Jesus is Lord and everything when, it, when He's doing what you want Him to do, right? When, when you, you're getting the promotions and marriage is easy and kids are good and the stock market's up, of course it's easy to live with Jesus as Lord in those situations. It's harder to live with Jesus as, when Jesus as Lord, when Jesus as King, with Jesus in charge of all life, when life is a roller coaster and things aren't going the way that you think they should. So it's life... As life goes and you understand Jesus is king, but then life starts taking uh, ups and downs and lefts and rights and you're not prepared for them, all of a sudden it becomes a little bit more difficult to process like, what does it mean for Jesus to be in charge because Jesus isn't doing things quite the way I would like him, like him to do things, right? Uh, it, it, we end up getting at a place where life isn't turning out the way we thought it would. Is anybody uh, honest enough in here this morning to just, just say, like, life didn't turn out the way I thought it would? Like, even, not even a bad way, in a good way. Like, life, I'll be honest with you, like, I never saw it going the way it is, right? And it just turns out, right? But it becomes harder to live life with God as king when life isn't going the way you think it should. The temptation when life is a roller coaster is to put our arms and legs outside of the car and try, the cart and try to do things ourselves, right? So we'll try to steer this thing ourselves instead of keeping our hands and legs inside the, the moving uh, train at all times, right? Has anybody ever been to a theme park, right? And they, the, the intercom's announcing that as you get in. Please keep hands and arms inside of the car. I'm like, where else am I going to put them, right? Like, let me see if I can roll but the temptation really, as we get to go in and God is turning things in a way that we're not good with, is to see, well, maybe if I can take control of this and move things the way I want to, then it'll be like I want it to. And, and what happens when we do that is all of a sudden we're not living with God as king, we're putting ourselves as king. Now, that's all uh, important context for what we're about to see for the life of David. Because David, up to this point, his life can only be described as a roller coaster. Think about it with me. We talked about this over the past couple of weeks. If you hadn't been here, you can go and find them. Uh, but the, the message we talked about, David was a shepherd boy. Now, th the thing about a shepherd boy is his life is just not that interesting. 
right? You know what his days consisted of? He walked to one end of the pasture with the sheep, and then when the dumb sheep got tired of standing and eating that patch of grass and they walked back, he followed them back to the other end of the pasture, right? This, he, he's in uh, what can only be described as obscurity. And then one day, in, in obscurity, comes this man named Samuel, and he anoints him and says, you're going to be king over all of Israel. Now, all of a sudden, David's life is, a, is on a, a roller coaster, and it's going straight up. Like, we're talking meteoric ascent here, right? And as he, so as he get, uh, gets anointed king at 16, 17 years old, he, he uh, then one day goes to visit his, visits his brothers on the battlefield. And as he visits his brothers on the battlefield, there's this guy named Goliath who's defaming the armies of the Lord. And what does he do? He goes out there and fights Goliath and kills him dead. And all of a sudden, what started out as a slow rise is now becoming like really, really rocket fuel. This guy is on his way to the top. So much so, his life is so, going up so fast that imagine this. As he's coming back into Israel, the people of Israel are, are, are shouting this song. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And all of a sudden, David's the man every man wants to be, right? He, he is the hero of the story. But it gets even better. As David's walking through uh, and, and trying to figure out what it means to live uh, on this meteoric sense, he, he's being loyal to the king, and the king essentially sends him on a suicide mission uh, for, the, for the hand of his daughter-in-law. If you remember, uh, when he killed Goliath, he was promised King Saul's hand in marriage. Well, King Saul is getting a little jealous of David at this point, because I don't know how, if you know how politics work but typically the king's on top but the people are israel are saying david's killed tens of thousands and saul just thousands right so saul's getting a little bit jealous here so he sends david on what is essentially a suicide mission but guess what david is a bad man okay and david uh, ends up becoming what it can only be described as a renowned warrior in the people of israel so that when he's on his way back in from defeating the philistine armies they sing the song again and again that saul has killed his thousands but david has killed his tens of thousands and david's trajectory is straight up but yet he's still serving in the king's court and one night while he's serving in the king's court saul he's playing the harp for saul saul takes a spear and chucks it at david's head and tries to kill him now real quick you may not be educated in relational dynamics okay but when someone throws a spear at your head it typically changes the relationship right and that, that's what happens here. And so what happens, think about this with me for a moment. David's life has been a roller coaster down in the valley of being a shepherd boy, meteoric ascent, and he's the most famous person in all of Israel. Now, as King Saul tries to kill him, he's become, he actually becomes a fugitive, and instead of being declared the rightful king of Israel, he's going back down the roller coaster. That moment where you're scared to death, right, and you're screaming, and your hands are in the air, and you're thinking, oh my God, I'm probably going to die. That's what David is in. He's in that descent down back on the roller coaster as he actually becomes a fugitive. And what we find leading up to 1 Samuel 24 is that David at this point has become an expert fugitive. He's a bandit of sorts. At this, at this point in his life, he has more in common with Billy the Kid than with Alexander the Great. Right? This is literally a wild west of sorts where he's running from the law trying to stay alive. And the rightful king of Israel is on the run. But can we just like, acknowledge that David's life probably at this point hadn't turned out how he thought it would? So if you're here this morning and you think, man, it just didn't go in how I think it should, you're in good company. 
However, as he start as he's gonna, he starts to develop a, a political following, as the people of God begin to understand that David, God's plan for David is more than just shepherding. And ultimately, what we're going to see in this story in 1 Samuel 24 today is what we find in David is that David's going to set forth an example for us on how to get through life while, with tr- while trusting God and keeping our hands in the cart. Does that make sense to everybody? So the big idea today is this. Following God means denying ourselves and trusting His ways and His timing. Following God means denying ourselves and trusting His ways and His timing. This is what David's going to show us. This is what it means to live as a Christian. 1 Samuel 24, starting in verse 1, here's what Scripture says. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Now, real quick, let's talk about this. What you should read, just contextually, is that Saul taking 3,000 men, Saul is taking essentially the, the best of the best in the Israeli army. We're talking about the ancient Near East version of like uh, the Green Berets, okay? These are the guys who are going with Saul. And, and what you should take from that is that Saul has decided in his mind that enough is enough. He's going to put an end to this guy who thinks he he should sit on the throne. So Saul had enough at this point. Verse 3. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Real quick. That means exactly what you think it means. You're like, I wonder what it means in Hebrew. The same thing it means in English. All right? Now David and his men were sitting in the inner parts of the cave. Now real quick, let's talk about this. We cannot become so... Um, serious when we're reading the scripture that we can't appreciate the the story or the humor that's before us um, imagine this scenario david on the run for his life uh hears that saul is coming so he chooses a cave that's a great cave to hide in let's hide there for kings from king saul and then all of a sudden as he and his men are in the back of the cave here comes this guy with a crown on his head in and he drops his robe and begins to use the bathroom now that's funny all right. And if you don't think it's funny, like, don't take yourself so serious like that. Like this is almost setting before us like a comical scene. And it's kind of saying, hey, God's really orchestrating all this together. All right. Verse five, verse four. And the men of the day of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall, shall seem good to you. Can I tell you, that is a logical assumption by the men of David there. What are they saying? David, this is it, bro. Like, you've been anointed king. We know, we know you're on the way up. You've killed your tens of thousands, Saul his thousands. You're the guy, and this is God delivering Saul into your hand. That is a very logical assumption. But notice what happens. The end of verse 4, then David arose. That's a very directional saying in Hebrew. It means he made a choice. He arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Don't miss what's just happened here. David 
has chosen to go against circumstances because he feels like that's what's honoring to God. We'll talk about it in just a second. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and, saw, and called after Saul, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared your life. I said, I will not not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you, me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king come out of Israel? Now, we're going to see something about David here, right? But when the Bible says David was a man after God's own heart, I, I believe this is a little bit of the mentality that it's talking about, okay? As long as David had this mentality in life, he never erred. It's when he forgot who he was in this sense that he, he fell. Look what he says. After whom has the Lord, come out, my Lord, come out to pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? He's saying, what, a, what a, David doesn't have a puffed up estimation of himself. Can I just tell you, one of the most valuable things you can possess in the Christian life is an accurate estimation of who you are and how weak you actually are. Now that was completely free. May the Lord be the, therefore be the judge, be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now, real quick, this story... Uh, which, if we can be honest, is amusing, but is confusing to a certain extent because in our modern-day mindset, what we think is this could be the moment where he just finishes it all, right? This story raises several questions about how it is we're supposed to get through life trusting in God, how it is we're supposed to get through life walking with God, keeping our hands inside the cart, okay? So the first thing, a couple questions it raises. First question that we see it raises is this. How do we know God's plan? How do we know God's plan? Another way to say that might be this. How do we know God's will? Now, real quick, let me just say, this may be the most common question in the Christian faith. Because here's the thing. As we accept, the, uh, uh, accept Jesus, right, get saved, give our life to Jesus, there comes in, becomes something in us that desires to follow the Lord, right? And so what we begin to ask ourselves is, how do I follow the Lord? And then we, as we start to walk through, right, we, just, we, we all have this question of how do I know what God's will even is? Like we come to these forks in the road, how do I know which direction is God's will? Now let me just say, that is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, if you're in this room this morning and you proclaim to be a Christian, but you've never considered, like, what does it mean to follow God's will? How do I know God's will? I think you've got some serious problems because if that, mean, that would mean that you're not concerned with God's will because you're king and God's not. Part of living with God as king means we need to know what God's plan is for me. How do I know God's plan? So this is a big question this story raises. Now, why does it raise it? Because it would seem in this moment that God's plan is coming to fruition for David. That all he has to do is go and act and God's plan is going to be fulfilled. But he doesn't. So the question becomes, how do we know God's plan? How do we know God's will? 
First thing we have to do in order to understand God's plan is we have to look past our circumstances. We have to look past our circumstances. Part of the problem, well, part of the reason we get messed up in Christian faith, especially in, the, in, in modern Christian faith, is we look at our circumstances to determine what the will of God must be for our lives and what our next step should be. We let our circumstances tell us where to go. Now, look at verse 4, because this is pretty important that God's telling us we have to look past our circumstances. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as itself seem good to you. Now, circumstantially, this looks to be a moment provided by God to take, for David to take the throne. If we're going based on circumstances, David needs to go kill the guy. If God's will is revealed by circumstances, David needs to go kill the guy. And that, here's the problem with that. That as circumstances develop in our life, if we think God, that God's will is revealed by circumstances, we'll get ourselves into a whole lot of trouble doing things that we're never, God had never intended us to do because it seemed convenient in the moment. To, this wasn't a moment provided by God for David to take the throne. See, I think God did intend for this to happen the way it happened, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't a moment for David to take the throne. It was a moment for David to show he trusted God despite life's circumstances. We have to look past our circumstances to know God's will. We also have to look past our desires to know God's will. Now, this is something that, that really uh, Americanized Christianity struggles with because we've been watching Disney and Pixar for so long, right? And in every Disney and Pixar movie you watch, there's a lion or a frozen princess telling you that the most important thing you can do is follow your heart, right? And now, while we, while we may pick on that, this, this mindset has entered into the world, this post-enlightenment mindset that the chief of our own, uh, the captain of our own boat is ourselves, right? Like, well, like we're the ones who are steering the ship. And so if we want it, if it is our desire, it must be right. Right? So this mindset seeps in so that we get ourselves real hemmed up because we think God wants, uh, God wants us to have what we want. And a lot, uh, we say that a lot of times by saying this, God just wants me to be happy. I'm not going down that road. <laughs> so we have to look past our desires. See, think about this with me. David, no doubt, at this moment, desired to be king. He wanted to be king. Think about him becoming anointed at 16, 17 in the field. Do you not think there were days and weeks and months after he was anointed in which he walked around that field thinking about how awesome it was going to be to sit on the throne? Uh, he would just daydream and think, man, God's anointed me king, and one day I'm going to get to rule all the land, right? And, and I'm going to get to do justice and equity. I'm going to get to encourage the people. He, he no doubt wanted to be king. He probably even more so wanted to be king since he was a fugitive on the run. Think, think about that for a moment. He's been running from Saul for, for some time now, and as he ran from Saul, you can only imagine that as he ran in the wilderness, part of what he thought was, there's going to come a day when I'm going to be king, and I'll get to go home, and I won't have to run anymore. He no doubt wanted to be king. At this point, he probably even feels like he deserves to be king, because if we're honest, Saul's not doing too good of a job. Circumstances and desires can get us into a lot of trouble when they are divorced from an intentional relationship with the Lord. I'm going to say that again. Circumstances and desires can get us into a lot of trouble when they are divorced from an intentional relationship with the Lord. Why is that? And I'm going to put this on the screen because I want us to see it. 
Circumstances and desires are always evolving. What's that mean? Circumstances and desires are always changing. Think about this for just a second. If you don't like your current set of circumstances, and you, like if you've been alive for more than 10 minutes, you know this is true, give it, a, give it two weeks, and you know what your circumstances are going to be? Completely different. And as far as desires go, listen, I love you guys. Y'all can't tell me what you want to eat most days. Right? Much less what you desire from life. You know the biggest argument me and my wife get in? It's what do you want to eat? I don't know. What do you want? But we, our, our desires are not good enough, are not, are not solid enough. They're always evolving that we can't even have conversations about what restaurants we like to go to. Right? Circumstances and desires are always evolving, which means we cannot rely on them to show us God's unchangeable will. Why would we rely on something that is constantly changing to show us what is unchangeable? The, pl- the main places we see this play out in our world today, just in, especially in the church, what, where we start relying on circumstances and desires, I'll tell you two ways we see it. We see it in romances and finances. Let me give you an illustration. Does, in, in, this is in romance. Desires change and you don't feel like you love your spouse anymore. Now, some of y'all in here are like newlyweds, and you can't imagine, like, I would never feel any differently about my spouse, all right? Then you've been married for seven years, right, and your five-year-old spills a drink, and you're arguing about whose fault it was that the five-year-old spilled the drink, okay? I'm not talking from experience, all right? (laughs) But I'm just saying, like, there'll come a day where, like, it's Tuesday, and you know what you want, both of you and your spouse want to do? Fist fight in the backyard, all right? I'm just joking, but, Right? So, like, you can't imagine it, but, like, there, there, there are times where maybe your desire is not at the same level that it once was. Now, imagine that desire ha- is not at that level, and then it takes a couple weeks. And a couple weeks turn into a couple months. A couple months turn into a year. And before you know it, you've been going on a year with no desire for your spouse. So, the desires have changed. And then circumstantially, things begin to shift, and you're introduced to a new coworker who understands you. And you feel like you haven't felt in years. The question is, in this circumstance, is it God's will for you to abandon your marriage in favor of something new? Because listen, circumstantially, yes, it would seem it would appear to be. As far as your desires go, your marriage is struggling anyway. Now listen, some of you are real uncomfortable. It's because this is how people think. Circumstances and desire do not reveal the will of God. Now let me just back up off of that because that feels real heavy for some of y'all. But let me just say this, okay? A lot of the times the reason people fall into moral failure is because they've never decided not to fall into moral failure. That's completely free. That's not in my notes. Stick it in your pipe. Smoke on it, okay? (laughs) But we see desires and circumstances rule romance. Then we see desires and circumstances run our finances a lot, if we're honest. Think about it with me. Circumstances fall in your lap, and the house that you've been wanting is selling for $40,000 less than the average in your dream neighborhood. Circumstantially, some things are shifting. You desire to have this perfect home to raise your kids in, right? Think it. It's, it's perfect. 
God must, God's just working these circumstances out. Man, some of y'all are grimacing because y'all know how this works, right? Y'all done done it, all right? Y'all done done it. <laughs> South Georgia talk for you, you've done that. God wants me to, God wants me to have this house, right? It's, it, I, I, I want it for my kids, if I'm honest. Because it's the perfect neighborhood. They would have so many kids to play with in that neighborhood. It's on a cul-de-sac. They would, could ride their bikes. And, and it's the perfect school zone. So they would have the perfect education, right? And it's right down the road from that church. I really want this house so I can teach my kids about God. <laughs> now, y'all laughing. Don't act like you, that's not the train of thought, right? We'll talk ourselves into anything. Circumstantially, it's fallen into place. It's our desire to have it. The problem is it's still $30,000 more than what you can afford and still tithe every month. Is it God's will for you to disregard tithing for the dream home? You, you, you see, here's what I'm trying to say. Circumstances and desires do not reveal God's will for our life. As a matter of fact, if all we do is follow circumstances and desires, we're going to find ourselves in a bad place real quick. So how do we know God's will? Here's how we know God's will. We know God's will by knowing God's word. Let me say that again. We know God's will by knowing God's word. David knew that to kill Saul in this context would be tantamount to murder. Now, let, let's just talk about it for just a second. There's a lot of like... Um, honorable ways to kill someone right like it's not like david is challenging saul here to like a, the field of battle where they're going to duke it out in honor saul has his robes literally on the ground now maybe you've never fought before but if you've ever been in a fight if one person has clothes on and the other person doesn't it's not generally a fair fight <laughs> right and not to mention it's not a very honorable way to take over a kingdom by killing the king with when he's using the bathroom how did you become king, David? Well, Saul was going number two, right? <laughs> and I killed David. Here's what David knew that this context would be tantamount to murder. And he knew what God said about murder. What does God say about murder? If you're new to the Bible, whole Bible thing, God said, don't, don't do it, okay? Like, let's go ahead and take it off the table. Some people are like, dang, all right? He knew, he knew God said not to murder. So what does he do? He knew that was wrong. So circumstances and desire didn't determine what David thought God wanted or what David would do. God, David knew God's word revealed God's will. So David lived according to God's word. Here's why this is all important. Circumstances and desires do not order our life. God's word orders our life. We live according to God's word. This is what it means to live God as king. So it, 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 just throw this all out. All right? I talk, we talked today about living with God in charge. Okay, If we are not willing to subject ourselves to God's word, but instead we would rather place our desires and our preferences and our circumstance over God's word, word, then God is not in charge. God is not king. We are. Living with God in charge means we forfeit what is convenient and what is comfortable for what is right and what is God-honoring. Living with God in charge means we forfeit what is convenient and comfortable for what is right and God-honoring. So how do we know God's will? That's one question. Second question is this. How do we wait on God's will? How do we follow God's will in another sense? So, and we do that. Uh, let me just skip ahead with you a little bit if I can. Back there in the back. Can you go ahead and put the big idea back on the screen? How do, how do we follow God's will? We deny ourselves and we trust His ways and His timing. 
So here's what we have to do. Deny ourselves. That means we have to be obedient to what God is doing, what God says. Now, real quick, let me just let me say this. A lot of times obedience gets a bad rap because we're, we're a culture of grace. Hear me say this. We are a church of grace. Grace is it, okay? If it wasn't for grace, I wouldn't be up here preaching today because if it was all about obedience, I couldn't come up here because I'm not obedient enough, all right? We're a church of grace. But obedience gets a bad rap a lot of times because we, we focus on the grace. Grace empowers us for obedience. So when we're talking about how do we follow God's will, how do we stay in the car, we do that by denying ourselves, by being obedient to God's word. Notice what the Bible says. In verse 4, the Bible says this, Then David arose. That's a very intentional statement. It means David made a choice. So get this. It's not like David is on his way to kill Saul, and then he decides at the last second to chicken out and just cut off a corner of his robe. That's not what happens here. When the Bible says, then David arose, it's a directional element, meaning David decided what he was going to do, and he went and proceeded to do it. In other words, David decided that he was going to give up what was comfortable and what was convenient in order to be obedient to God. And after he was obedient to God, here's what he did. He trusted God to sort out the rest. Now, real quick, let me say this. Part of the problem, part of the reason we don't follow God the way we should in life is because we don't trust Him to take care of us. Look what happens in verse 11 and 12. I want you to see this. Verse 11 and 12 says this. This is David speaking to Saul. See, my father, see the corner of the robe in my hand? For the, by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and I did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. All right, real quick, what's he saying? I, be, I was obedient. I didn't kill you, even though I had the chance. Verse 12, he's obedient, then he trusts. May the Lord judge between me and you. In other words, I'm going to trust God to sort out the rest. So what does it mean to follow God in life? What does it mean to live with God in charge? It means we get on this roller coaster called life and we put our hands and we put our feet inside the cart and then we decide that we're going to be obedient to Him and trust Him to get us where He wants us to go. And here's why we do that. Because we know that God has better in store for us than where we could ultimately take ourselves. You see, here's what David knows. David knows that in this moment, he could right now become king. Right? He says in this moment right now he can become king. But David knows that God does not use wickedness to bring about righteousness. Right? This is why circumstance, bad circumstances don't normally lead to good things. Right? This is why normally adulterous affairs do not lead to mighty marriages that are invested in God and making, uh, and making disciples around the world. Why? Because normally wickedness does not bereft righteousness. Now thank God there's a God of grace who can redeem anything. But here's what David knows, that God's plan for me is better than the plan that I have for myself. So he gets in the car, and even though it's a roller coaster, he decides, I'm going to be obedient, and I'm going to keep my hands and wheel, and I'm going to trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to what? Trust and obey. Let me explain it to you this way. This, way. this may be the, the, the simplest way I can throw it out there today to, to wrap things up. Trusting God means that we do the next right thing. Trusting God means that we do the next right thing. Does anybody in here use Waze? You, all right. If you don't use Waze, you need to get it, okay? 
Here's the reason why. Waze tells us all the good stuff. It tells us when there's uh, a wreck up ahead. Uh, there's a cop in here, so I'm not going to look at him when I say this. It tells us when there are cops on the road, right? And we can eh, right, go around that and slow down. The only thing that's bad about Waze is that when I start driving too fast, it jumps up in big red letters and like insults my driving fast, right? Like Waze, I know how fast I'm going. I don't need this pressure from you, okay? But the Waze has one default to it, okay? And, and if you use Apple Maps or Google Maps, you know this, okay? The good thing about Google Maps or Apple Maps is that you can see your entire route, and you can also get a step-by-step -step progress through your entire route. So let's say I wanted to go to Columbia. If I put that into Apple Maps, Apple, I could pull that route up, and Apple Maps would tell me, first, you're going to get on 385, and you're going to drive so many miles. Then you're going to take a right and get on to 26, and you're going to drive so many miles, and you're going to take this exit. I could read all that up front. You see what I'm saying? Waze doesn't have that feature. What Waze has is it'll show you the big the big options, but it won't tell you the step-by-step -step instructions. So if you want to use Waze, what you have to do is select a route and then do the next thing it tells you to do without knowing what's coming next, which is incredibly frustrating. But can I tell you that a lot of times, that's what following God is like. And now listen, I, I've used Waze long enough to know this, that if it tells you, to, like if you're on the interstate and it tells you to get off, you know what you better do? Get off, all right? I'm talking like Michael Scott pulling into the lake if it tells you to go into the lake, okay? Like Waze knows. And that's what following God's like, okay? That if he says, take this turn here or take this turn here, that we, while keeping our hands and carts inside the wheel, say, God, I'm going to do the next right thing that you've told me to do. So I just want to challenge you this morning. What is the next right thing that God has told you to do? Is it killing that sin that you've been holding on to for so long? Is it witnessing to that coworker? Is it starting to uh, foster? Is it starting to adopt? What is the next right thing that God's told you to do? And let me just close with this. As I, we talk about this all the time, but I think it may be a new way for us to kind of to work through it. What does it mean to live with Jesus in charge? Think about this with me. Each and every one of us in this room, we have a throne in our heart. You know what I'm saying? A throne where, where the person in charge sits. Okay? And the natural inclination every day that we wake up is for us to take the seat in that, take the seat in that throne. For us to be the one who's calling the shots, who's leading the way, to go in that direction. Being a Christian means that we look at that seat and we understand that it's not our seat. That we step out of that seat and we get in the car and we trust God to sit on the throne. We trust Jesus to take us where He wants to take us. So listen to me real quick. Christian, if you've been here and you've been following Jesus your whole life, let me say this to you. Stop trying to sit on His throne. That's not your seat. Things in your life only mess up when you sit in that seat because it's not yours. Things in that seat, when you start relying on, on circumstances, when you start relying on desires to lead you while you sit in that seat, will lead you astray. Stop sitting in a seat. And this morning, if you've been sitting in that seat and you've been messing up life, let me, hear, let me tell you this to you. Thank God He is a God of grace that can redeem your worst mistake. But get out of His seat. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian because you've never gotten out of the seat in the first place. I want to tell you that you can become a Christian this morning simply by saying, Jesus, that's your seat and not mine. Will you, forgive my, will you forgive me of my sins and take your place in your seat? I'd love to talk to you about how to do that. Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word. 
Father, if, I, if I'm honest, Lord, I, it's the foolish ramblings of a man up here, and I just pray that you would bless them somehow through the power of your Holy Spirit. For the glory of your name, dear God, help us understand what it means to live with you in charge, with you on the throne. And God, I just pray, dear God, what I've been praying all week, would you just show me what my next right thing is, dear Lord? Would you show me what my next step in following you is, what the next turn is, God? Because I'm not smart enough to do it on my own. Only you can lead, only you can direct. And Lord, help us get out of the seat today. In Jesus' name, amen.